today we are here in Stanford um, together with Thomas Hendrik Ilves, who is the former president of Estonia. And um, we are here to talk to him about e-residency, about e-government and um, yeah, the whole digitalization of governments in the end. Hi, Thomas, and thanks for, for having us. Grüß Gott and hello. So you have been the fourth president of Estonia and You've been in office from 2006 to 2016, and now you're here in Stanford. Uh, what, what are you doing here, and, and why, why are you here? I was invited. <laughs> That's one reason. But uh, uh, since I've actually, I was d dealing with digitization of governance uh, long before I became president. In fact, uh, well, it's hard, hard to say when I started, but certainly since uh, almost immediately after independence of the country i started pushing for it it didn't always <laughs> get acceptance but in any case uh and right now uh, i'm working kind of on what seems like the flip side of the issue of digitization but it's the um it's the dangers to democracy in the digital era uh which is I actually think it's very they're closely related that in fact uh we're very vulnerable and we have to do many things uh and I'm writing about what we need to do to make uh, uh make our democracies specifically democracies because authoritarian regimes are not so vulnerable they're not vulnerable at all to to these kinds of things that we've been seeing And so that's what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. So maybe let's stick to that topic right away. Um, what do you think? What should we do to to save our democracies? If we if we look at all those um, movements, even in Germany, we have this AfD uh, party, which is very right wing and and very conservative. Uh, here in the US, we have Donald Trump. Um, we we have some movements that are can be a danger to our democracies uh, what what can we do to to avoid such developments well um, what i'm focusing on is what we need to do with our electoral systems so that they are not so vulnerable uh, because there if you look at uh, the kinds of attacks that we have suffered they go from hacking to doxing, which is we saw in the case of Hillary Clinton in 2016, in the case of Emmanuel Macron in uh, 2017, where you go into a server and publish things. Uh, we have trolling, uh, and then we have uh, highly specific ads, which we saw with, say, the Cambridge Analytica uh, actions uh, of taking data from Facebook and then uh and then using that to target very specific individuals and and where we will be facing even more things such as deep fakes which are basically uh photoshop movies i mean that's the best way to understand it. you can make anyone say anything uh and it looks real uh so these are all threats and we have to uh there's no single answer to it uh first of all Uh, we have to realize that there are a limited number of actors who have been doing things. Later on, other people pick things up, but originally a limited number of actors. I mean, 
two or three hacking groups from Russia that have attacked every single country in Europe, plus Canada and the United States. And, and, and then there's the St. Petersburg trolling factory or the inter, so-called Internet Research Agency that has been trolling uh, all over Europe and in Canada and the United States. And the, one of the first things that we need to look at is that the response of every country has been individual. We can be attacked. I mean, the, the Bundestag was hacked. The, you know, the Stiftungen were attacked. WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, and the Dutch Foreign Ministry, the Italian Foreign... I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And so they're all the same actors. And so we need to think about how we work together more closely. And unfortunately, neither the European Union nor NATO has done a decent job on this. And specifically, I would actually argue here that this is a real job for the EU because with all these this talk of, you know, European army, I don't think that'll ever happen. ESCO, I don't think that'll ever happen. I do think, however, that when it comes to security, cybersecurity, security of our democratic institutions, that the EU is ideal for that. I mean, NATO is much more of a military operation, but these are not military threats. These are non-military threats to the functioning of democracy. I mean, you can apply, you can appeal to the NATO treaty if you want, saying, I mean, one of the reasons, Casus Belli is actually uh, a threat to the democratic institutions, but I don't think it's so much of a NATO thing. I do think that the European Union needs to get its act together to begin sharing. This, and this has not been happening up till now. So that's one kind of thing. Um, we have to look at how elections are structured. Uh, here, most European countries have <clears throat> multiple mandate <clears throat> district elections. That is, you have many candidates running from uh, from each election district, which makes you a little more resilient. Whereas when you have first past the post systems as you have in you know, UK, United States, Canada, I mean, basically the Anglo-Saxon countries there, that leads to a two party system and it's very susceptible to manipulation. Same thing goes for referenda. We have to be very careful about how we do referenda and how you ask the questions, because if it becomes a yes, no, or a binary decision, um, it become it becomes one of those places where outside interference works. And we know that we know that it happened in Brexit and there are all kinds of things coming out only now. And in fact, today, I haven't even read the article, but in Germany, uh, there is a far better study of what happened to Brexit than you have seen published in the UK. Uh, but we know already with the Dutch referendum on the association agreement for Ukraine, we saw interference there. And we have to be, we have to understand that when you do something like a referendum, that in the old days, you just assumed out oh, it's a referendum, we vote. But now in this digital era, we are, we can be attacked. And I think what we need to really do is understand that we are in a new era. Um, I call it the digital era, but not a very unique name. But I would say with two, two things happened in about 2006, 7, 2008. And that is, first of all, the smartphone which gave almost everyone access to the internet. And the other one was social media coming into 
the smartphone environment, mainly Facebook. And with that, you suddenly you had this new situation where almost, I mean, basically not everybody. I mean, there's still a billion people who are not connected, but billions and billions of people are now connected. And they are all potential victims of manipulation in ways that were not before. And so I think that this is as as huge a change as, say, the invention of movable type by by Gutenberg, when suddenly you saw mass literacy. It didn't happen right away, but, you know, we've had computers for a long time. I've been on a computer since I was, well, for 50 years. So, I mean, I was 15 when I learned to program. But now it is massive. Because everyone, everyone has one of these devices. Uh, so that means we have to rethink things. I mean, other things we need to do is clearly look at. I mean, if you look at for look at our politicians, then very few of them understand anything about what is digital. Really, I mean, the, the level of knowledge is so bad that I don't even want to say because. Uh, but, and at the same time, the kind of the, the amount, there is no real thinking here in Silicon Valley about what the, what they are doing. I mean, if your motto is move fast and break things, uh, well, one of the things that end, may end up being broken is democracy. And so we need to have much more thinking. I mean, there, there are many things we can do, but I, I'd say those are some of them that we need to do to start to realize that we are not living any, we are not living in the world of democracy of nine, 1995 or 1970 or, or even sort of the first half of the 20th century that we are in a new environment and in a democracy is vulnerable. If you look at Estonia, I think you started with the whole e-government movement in 1997 and, um, or that was at least the, the story on, on the residency page when, when, I, when I looked at the milestones, the most important milestones. Um, but you have like at least more than a decade uh, of experience when it comes to, to digital government and, and securing those kind of things. Well, I don't know how they dated there. Because basically, I proposed in 94, 95 that we put all of our schools online. Mm -hmm. Uh, and put computer banks in the schools. And uh, so 96, that was agreed to. 97, I guess, it started moving. Uh, by 98, all schools in Estonia were online and, and uh, work. Had, I mean, we had all schools had children had access to computers. And then the next step was to do the same thing for the for the especially the rural population but people who didn't have access to computers i mean today 90% of estonian households have a computer back then of course we were much poorer than we are today we had just become independent or independent again and so the idea was to allow people to go to libraries or sort of you know town halls and have access to computers there um, my own thinking about this came really from two things. One was that I, as I mentioned, I did learn to program when I was 14, 15 years old. 
it was a one-off experiment by a math teacher who who was doing her PhD in math education, and she wanted to see if you could teach you know, people in the gymnasium, uh, high school, uh, can they learn to program? And we could. And uh, most of the other people in the class are now, they're all in the IT business. I, I didn't go into business. And the other thing, which was uh, right after independence, Estonia was uh, had gone through 50 years of Soviet occupation, very backward, very little infrastructure. And, you know, that would, and I looked at it and said, well, it's going to take decades for us to build all the things that were not built during the Soviet period. So, you know, you want an autobahn, it's going to take you years to build an autobahn where you should have an autobahn, but you don't. But then, um, since I'd always been a geek, uh, I remember 93, the summer, uh, Mosaic came out. And Mosaic was the first web browser. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was four years after the, the uh, Tim Berners-Lee did the uh, hypertext transfer protocol, or HTTP, and the World Wide Web was born. But people didn't really have access to that. But then suddenly you could buy. At that time, you had to buy the web browser and take your floppies and <laughs> load it into your computer. And I looked at this and I said, this is one area where we are not behind. It's everyone is starting off on the level playing field. So we should be pushing this. And it, it met a fair bit of resistance when I started talking about this in Estonia. But... And then I remember when I proposed the idea of computerizing the schools that our teachers union, which has a weekly newspaper or had a week, I don't know if they still do, but they had a weekly newspaper and every week, you know, <laughs> idiot, idiot, stupid, bad, will ruin us. Um, so, but e-governance started... I mean, the first we realized quickly, this is not just me, but I, and that was the time was foreign minister by that time in 96, 97, 98, that uh, we had to um, we had to do it uh, better than it looked possible. And one of the and some very smart people uh, identified these issues. And one of them, which continues to be the fundamental problem, and it's something that Germany has not solved yet, or only halfway solved, and that is a secure identity. Mm -hmm. You need a secure identity. Uh, Germany actually does give the Bürger caught out, mm -hmm. but the problem is that for whatever political reasons, you will not tie it to a national registry. And if you don't do that, you don't get you cannot have legal force or legal efficacy. You can't do a digital signature. Um, and I don't understand why there's an objection because you have a passport that is issued by the whatever in the ministerium, whoever put, gives out the, the passport. But there is a registry of German citizens, right? So why don't you why? Why is that? How is a Bürgerkart different from a? From a German passport. I don't know. But in any case, you you have to have, you're in the national registry with your passport. It, it says, you know, you're a shop. Therefore, you will get a passport. Well, you just connect your car to that too. Then you can do what we do, which is 
You can sign, you can basically do all transactions that you want, uh, legal transactions included. Like in my country, there are three things that you cannot do online. Get married, <laughs> get divorced. Uh, and third, which is uh, a big problem in many countries today, as we see this massive corruption, is sell property or buy property. You have to show up and you cannot have an anonymous shell company. You see here in the U.S. or the U.K., you have these anonymous shell companies buying property for millions and millions. And, and it's actually owned by some mafioso in some faraway place. Um, but the rest you can do. So sign contracts, all these things. So that's that's one of the key things. And I've and one of my main speaking points when I go around, because I'm always going around being invited to talk about this, is that digitization is not about technology. Digitization is about, first of all, political will. And then you develop policies, what you have to do to policy and what are, how you're going to do this. Third, you need the legislation that come out. Once you have the policy, then you have to need laws. Once you have the laws, you have to actually do the regulatory mechanisms so to ensure whatever is in the laws. And so we have, you know, for coming from a country that was under communist domination, of course, privacy for us is very, very important. One reason why I never understand the kind of arguments I get from many people in Europe, you know, they said, we had the Gestapo, we had the Stasi. I know we had the KGB, but I mean, what you do is you make the system so that they can't do those things to you. And I think we have, but in any case, that's part of digitization. And then part of that is also a very important part is the architecture that gives us the security. Everything is separate. Every, every, all of all data, the data are all stored in different places and you can only access it through your identity. Mm -hmm. You can never get at anything the way you do here, you know, mm -hmm. email, password. I mean, it's just, that's not secure. That's, I mean, you can brute force break anything like that, but you have to always be authenticated. So even if you're in a ministry and you want to look at something in your server to do your work, you still have to authenticate yourself. You have a record, a log file of every access. So that, that gives you a large amount of security. And the third thing which you need to do these days, or actually if you do, go, not even these days, but if you go digital, you have to worry about data integrity. One of the things that always bothers me is when I talk about our system, people say, well, what about privacy? I said, no, privacy, we've taken care of. That's not a that's that's the easy part. The real hard part is data integrity. And the difference between privacy and integrity is that uh, someone looks at my medical records and publishes my blood type. I don't know. Well, I, don't, I don't like that. But if someone goes and goes into my medical record and changes my blood type, mm -hmm. that can be fatal. Or, I mean, more likely... If someone publishes my bank account, it's probably embarrassing because it's so small. But if someone goes in, into my bank account and changes it and makes it even smaller, then I'm really in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we have also done, the sort of the third pillar of our security overall is that 
uh, all critical databases are on what I prefer to call a distributed ledger, but everyone else calls it blockchain. Mm -hmm. It's a private blockchain. That means it's limited in terms of who gives the authorization. But in order for anything to be changed, it has to go through that process. So that gives us because when you get to a stage that we're in in my country, we have no paper records of property owners. Right? So what happens if you go in there and you change your private property ownership? Or even more dangerous is that we only publish our laws digitally. Mm-hmm. Well, someone go and change the law. Or similarly, we have court cases. We only publish the court cases in, in digital form. So you can actually change the nature of law that way. Because if you look it up and you go, oh, it says this. Well, actually, someone went and changed it. So we have put all of those things on blockchain to avoid those kinds of problems. And not to mention, of course, healthcare records and so forth. So you have like a lot of experience. Uh, Estonia has a lot of experience as well. Um, if you look at the past for Estonia always was yeah, had to rely on also the protect protection by the NATO and the EU partners. Could this be now a chance to like, yeah, not to give back, but, but to, to um, a chance for a small state like Estonia to help the other big countries uh, to become more digital? Well, if they're interested, yes. But I mean, the way I see things, I mean, they're that what we need I mean, I'm also a very big fan of the European Union. I think the European Union is one of the best things that's ever happened to our continent. And if you look at what has made the European Union successful, there are things, there are services that people like. The most successful policy uh, for the general public is the Schengen Agreement. Well, let's think about what are other things like that. Uh, one thing we have in Estonia, and now we've started to work with Finland, is the digital prescription. So we've had digital prescriptions for over more than a decade, but um, but if if I get sick or if I need a drug renewed, I call my doctor, I write him, and and then I can go to any pharmacy with my card and identify myself. So I proposed six years ago to the president of Finland. Well, why don't you? Since Finland has adopted this our system, uh, the X-Road system, which is the distributed data exchange layer we use. So, well, why don't you, we do it so that, you know, Finns, we get sort of eight million Finns, Finnish visits a year, and there only are five million Finns. So we get a lot of Finns coming back a lot. And he said, great idea. Let's do it. But the problem was it took about six years for it to work, not because of the technological problems, but precisely for all the bureaucratic problems, all these sort of issues such as, well, one country subsidizes some medicines for some age groups in a certain amount. The other country subsidizes similar medicine, but for a different age group and different amount. But we got to work out so it works. But I would say we need something like that for all of Europe. So if I, you know, if I go to München and I get sick <laughs> and Now, I call my doctor in Estonia and he's okay, I'll put, put in the, the prescription. So I then go to the, you know, apotheca and uh, sort of 
you know, swabbing and sticking my card and says, you're you. And then, okay, I get my medicine. Those are the kinds of things that we need to do, I think, in Europe. I would like to see that being pushed. We don't have to go, go, I mean, there are many things that are really sort of science fiction that we could do, yes. But I think we should, at the level of basic services, we should be offering these. Well, I mean, a more, a more important step would be, say, medical records. So that you can, I mean, I can access my medical records anywhere, but... Say I go to Greece, you know, and I get sick, and my medical records are in Estonian. No doctor in Greece is going to be able to read my medical record. So, but I mean, if we have this system all across Europe, I mean, I give my, I go, my, I give the Greek doctor permission to look at my medical records. He gets the medical records. It's already translated automatically into Greek. He says, oh, you're allergic to that. And you have this and you have that blood type or whatever. And then those are the kind of things we should be working on to make the quality of or the services accessible to all Europeans. So that's one clear thing that I think we, we need to be working on, but it's going very slowly. Um, there is now, as of 2017, there's the ADOS directive, which says that all countries should issue digital identity cards with a chip. Not all countries even have done that much. And then it's what is also in there is that every country has to be able to give other EU citizens exactly what they give to their EU citizens, or more or less. Um, well, it's great for anyone coming to Estonia. It's great because you can get all these services because we must give you those services, you know, digital prescriptions, whatever it is, if, if you come as a German. And then if I go to Germany, there's not much I get with my ID card. Right. I mean, this is this is how we, we need to move that ahead uh, in Europe.